Welcome to Purpose Church. My name is Eric, and I'm so glad that you are joining us today for this incredibly important conversation. Today, we're talking about God's great love story, why gender and sexuality matter to God, and what the Bible teaches about LGBTQIA+. Now, before we get any farther into this message, I want to let you know that our production team has put together a really helpful website, purposechurch.com sexuality, where you can reach out for help, where you can find resources, videos, podcasts, books, and get some information and some resources, resources and, and be able to connect with somebody who can further help you as you're processing some of the content that we'll be talking about today. Now, we'll be using the book of Romans, especially later on in the message. And so I wanted to provide a little bit of context for the book of Romans. Romans was written by Paul from the city of Corinth, which is modern day South Central Greece, sometime between the years 56 to 58 AD to the Jewish and Gentile Christians in Rome during his third missionary journey. Paul wrote 13 of the 27 New Testament books. Paul, originally from Tarsus, was a Jewish and Greek educated tent maker and Roman citizen who was called by God to preach the gospel and plant churches, especially to reach the Gentiles. Now, Paul was uniquely positioned in the ancient Greco-Roman culture and context, aware of a multitude of philosophies about sexuality, to write words empowered by the Holy Spirit that are just as relevant today as they were in the first century. Now, a little while ago, somebody who's really important to me, who I'm close with, asked me a question. They said, so what does your church believe about LGBTQIA+. And as a pastor, I gotta tell you from the get-go, as soon as that question came at me, my gut reaction was to curl up in a ball and wish I was anywhere but this conversation. In fact, I remember rewinding and we were thinking in my head, if I could only rewind time and avoid this whole interaction, I would have. And yet, after the question was asked, and as I quickly prayed, Holy Spirit, help me, I actually began to feel some excitement about having this really important conversation. Because you, you see, I was excited because it's a really important conversation to have because the authors of the Bible who were inspired by the Holy Spirit, they talk a lot about gender, identity, sexuality, and the purpose of relationships. The Bible is not silent on this. In fact, it's incredibly hopeful, liberating, and clear. Which may answer the question, maybe you're going, why are we even talking about this? It's because the Bible addresses it. It is one of the largest questions being asked in our culture today. And I believe that the answer the Bible gives is liberating. Maybe you're same-sex attracted. Or you're in a same-sex relationship. Or you have gender dysphoria and you're wondering, what does the Bible actually teach on these topics? Or maybe you have people in your life who you love, who want to know from you why the Bible says what it does about sexuality and gender. You see, the starting point for this conversation is this question. 
What love story are you placing your trust in? Is God's big love story for the whole world and for you guiding your beliefs and behaviors or are you or am I trusting in another lesser love story? You see, why in the world would anyone attracted to a person of the opposite gender or the same gender or experiencing uh, what it feels like that it, as they're in their body, they're not the right gender, why would they choose to deny their desires? It only makes sense if you understand God's great love story for you and you discover that that great love story is worth giving up everything for. You see, it only makes sense if you know that the perfect, sinless, holy, all-powerful God of the universe created you. He knows you. He knows what's best for you and has made that clear to us through his word. What's going to kind of guide our time today is the words of Peter in 1 Peter 3. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Maybe your experience of Christians communicating about this topic is their voices and their tones have seemed to be filled with, with hatred. And I want you to hold me accountable to this, that today I intend that, that to, to share and to communicate with gentleness and with respect. Now, there is no way that I'm going to be able to answer every single question in the time that we have here. And this sermon's going to go a little bit longer than usual, but I know that I will leave questions unanswered, which is why I want to invite you to submit your questions to us. This Thursday, during our Young Adults Night, we want to invite all the young adults of our church to join us in person in the B building at 7 p.m. And we want to invite the rest of the church to join us on on YouTube Live as we answer your questions. And so as you're hearing me share today, whatever questions come to your mind, I want to invite you to text those to us at 909-713-4152, or you can email us questions at purposechurch.com. And please send those by Tuesday night so that we have a little bit of time to prepare and we hope to answer as many of them as possible. Pastor Glenn and myself and a few other pastors will be participating in that panel. Now, why does gender and sexuality matter to God? That's such a great question. First and foremost, it's because you matter to God. You matter to God. God created you intentionally, female or male, as a part of his purpose for your life. God designed you for relationships. He's a good God who knows that you and I need relationships. He's designed us for relationships that glorify him. And those relationships will ultimately lead to your flourishing. And lastly, God is holy. He's sinless. He has all the knowledge in the world, all the wisdom in the world. He can be trusted and God knows what's best for us even when we don't. Now I wanna take a moment here and I wanna apologize and repent 
to any person experiencing same-sex attraction and or gender dysphoria who has heard from a Christian or been made to feel that God doesn't care about you or that God doesn't love you. And I'll be honest, my great fear even in presenting this message today is that you would think that God doesn't love you or care about you. In fact, the opposite is true. And I hope to demonstrate that today through God's word. I want to also say, if you are a follower of Jesus, it is a sin to use degrading, hateful, or dehumanizing words, actions, or jokes towards anyone in the LGBTQIA plus community. Jesus wouldn't do it, and his followers can't either. Now, before we get too much farther, I want to give us kind of an overview of where we're going to go. I want to talk about the seven things to remember when talking about sexuality, gender, and the Bible. Number one, God is love. I've made a commitment that whenever anybody asks me about my opinions or my views on sexuality or gender, I'm always going to start with God is love. That's the story of scripture. Number two, we're gonna provide some LGBTQIA plus definitions and facts. Number three, the sexuality and gender conversation revolves around identity. Number four, the Bible commands a high sexual ethic for everyone. Number five, Christianity liberates us from the unhealthy obsession our culture has with sexual and romantic relationships. Number six, the Bible consistently commands God's people to not engage in same-sex sexual activity. And then lastly, number seven, we'll look at some next steps for all of us. So take a deep breath with me as we dive into what God's word has to say on each of these big ideas. Number one, God is love. John said in 1 John chapter 4, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. God's word makes it clear that God is the definition of love. God is the demonstration of love. And so when we're asking the question, what is love? The starting point is God. And, and it's all over the pages of scripture. John wrote in a chapter earlier in 1 John, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 139, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. 
Your works are wonderful, and I know that full well. God knows every single thought. He's familiar with all of your ways. Why? Because he loves you. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. We're literally still alive because of God's great love for us. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Psalm 36 verse 7, how priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Here's the big idea from Genesis to Revelation throughout all of scripture. God really, 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 really loves you. And that's not an exaggeration. It is clear from all the pages of scripture that God wouldn't want you to miss this singular idea. He's crazy in love with you. Right here, right where you are, right now, Jesus loves you. And God has made that clear to us. Friends, the the truth of scripture is this. God loves me. That's the truth of scripture. The question of scripture is, do I love God? Friends, the truth is God loves you. The question is, do you love God? John wrote in John chapter 14, he recorded Jesus who said this, if you love me, keep my commands. Jesus said, if you're wondering whether you love me or not, the answer is, are you keeping my commands? The psalmist wrote in Psalm 119, your hands made me and formed me. Give me understanding to learn your commands. You see, it's out of a deep understanding that God loves us that we choose to love him in return by keeping his commands. Uh, Earlier in in May uh, or back in June, our our family took a little vacation together. We we went on a trip and and my son Levi, we all like to bike ride in our family and my youngest son Levi was leading the pack and, and as he was riding his bike out in front of us, as we would come up to streets where there could have been cars crossing, I would yell at him, I would say, slow down, and look both ways. Levi, slow down and look both ways. Now I was clearly doing this because I wanted to protect him. I wasn't saying, Levi, slow down and look both ways because I wanted to withhold something from him. I wasn't trying to rob him of some kind of joy. I was telling him, slow down and look both ways because I love him and I wanted to protect him. You see, God's commands in scripture, they are a sort of protection for us, a sign of his great love for us. They are not given to us to make life more miserable, but to make life more enjoyable. And Paul, when he recognized who Jesus was and had his life transformed. He wrote these words in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul said, I'm no longer making the decisions about what's best for my life, but instead I am trusting Jesus because of what Jesus did for me. 
Big idea number two, let's look at some LGBTQIA plus definitions and facts. If you're not aware of what that acronym stands for, the L is for lesbian and gay, bisexual, transgender, queer or questioning, intersex, asexual, and then the plus is there as a way of leaving room for other or new identifications that the LGBTQIA plus community might develop. Let's dig a little bit deeper. Same-sex orientation or attraction is when an individual has sexual and or romantic attachments towards a person of the same gender. Gender dysphoria is a concept designated in the DSM-5, which is the fifth edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, as clinically significant distress or impairment related to a strong desire to be of another gender, which may include a desire to change primary and or secondary sex characteristics. Mark Yarhouse, who is an expert in the field of sexuality, he says this, instead of seeing the cause of same-sex orientation or attraction as either nature or nurture, most experts today believe that there are elements of both that contribute to a person's experience of same-sex attraction. Now let's look at some of the stats. Rebecca McLaughlin, who is uh, a Christian writer, and and she actually experiences same-sex attraction, though she's married to a man, she has a husband, she writes uh, about Professor Diamond at the University of Utah, who found that while 14% of women and 7% of men experience significant same-sex attraction, only 1% of women and 2% of men are only ever attracted to other women or other men. She has also found that people's feelings can change over time. Many people have the same patterns of attraction throughout their lives, but some people start off feeling attracted to girls and then later find themselves attracted to boys or vice versa. John Brooks from a secular news publication made a comment about transgender children. He said this, the phenomenon of transgender children growing out of their transgender identity by the time they are adolescents or adults is called desistance by gender researchers. For decades, follow-up studies of transgender kids have shown that a substantial majority, anywhere from 65 to 94% eventually ceased to identify as transgender. Dr. Preston Sprinkle says experts on both sides of the pubertal suppression debate, which which is the debate going on about when a young person has a a, a gender dysphoria, do you treat them with uh, puberty blockers or with uh, sexual reassignment surgeries? How do you handle that? Well, experts on both sides of that agree that within this context, 80 to 95% of children with gender dysphoria accepted their biological sex by late adolescence. Now I want to talk about the brain sex theory for a minute. The brain sex theory suggests that one's brain might have its own sex or gender, which in human beings is aligned with their biological sex, but in some people is misaligned. Some people, for instance, might be biologically male, but have a female brain or vice versa. This 
theory has some significant and fatal flaws. Just to begin, as we're talking about brain theories, in the 1800s, scientists argue that since the average brain weight of a woman is about five ounces less than that of a man, we should be prepared to expect a marked inferiority of intellectual power in the former, which is crazy. But in the 1900s, scientists theorized that black people's brains displayed an underdeveloped artistic power and an instability of character, lacking self-control, especially in connection with their sexual desires, which is absolutely absurd. Here's the point. When people use the brain sex theory as justification for puberty blockers or sexual reassignment surgeries, they run into the same problem that those scientists who were racist or sexist had in the 1800s and the 1900s. These brain theories are tangled up with gender stereotypes and generalities rather than proven absolutes. Stuart Ritchie, a secular um, analyzer of the data of over 5,000 UK participants on this topic said this, overall for every brain region that showed even large sex differences, there was always overlap between males and females, confirming that the human brain cannot, at least for the measures observed here, be described as sexually dimorphic, or in other words, different. Now listen to the words of Lily, a a transgender woman who shared her story in Vox, a secular news publication. Look at what she said. Transitioning is also not a cure. I needed gender affirming surgery to alleviate gender dysphoria and to feel as comfortable in my body as possible, but there is no cure for gender dysphoria. You can only treat the symptoms and our ability to treat the symptoms is limited. I still experience gender dysphoria, even though my physical results have turned out well. When I'm stressed out, my dysphoria worsens, making it harder to deal with whatever was stressing me out in the first place. Tragically, in February of 2013, a month into my transition, I admitted myself to a psychiatric ward because I was afraid I was going to hurt myself. Here's the point. Gender dysphoria is a psychological condition, not a biological condition. And so it should be treated psychologically. And when it's treated biologically, it doesn't actually fix the psychological, the very real and serious psychological challenges. Now I want to make this clear and I'll say this again. Having same-sex orientation or attraction is not a sin. Simply waking up and recognizing that you are attracted to or that you have same-sex orientation, that you're attracted to the same sex or you have same-sex orientation is not a sin biblically. And we're gonna see that in a minute. Participating in a same-sex sexual relationship is a sin. In the same way, having gender dysphoria is not a sin. And I hope that these two big ideas would would put some of you at ease, that they would bring some kind of comfort, that maybe where there has been shame or condemnation before, that that would be alleviated. Having gender dysphoria is not a sin. Transitioning from your God-given gender to another 
is a sin. Remember, sin is whenever I trust my feelings or desires over what God's word clearly teaches. Now, before we move any farther, I want to say these percentages that I'm about to read to you, these percentages represent people. That a researcher by the name of Andrew Marin collecting data from over 1,700 LGBT plus people gathered this data. And and these these numbers should break your heart because I think they break God's heart. 83% of LGBTQIA plus people were raised in the church. 51% of LGBTQIA plus people raised in the church will leave by the time they're 18. And 97% of those LGBTQIA plus people who left the church, chose to do so for relational reasons. They weren't listened to. They were mistreated. They were isolated or they were lonely. And I know that this breaks God's heart. It breaks my heart. And we are committed at Purpose Church that we will, to the best of our ability, not be that kind of community. That if you're wrestling through your sexuality and and or dealing with gender dysphoria and trying to figure out how to follow Jesus, you are welcome here at Purpose Church. And we want to walk alongside you in that journey because God loves you and we love you. Big idea number three. The sexuality and gender conversation, it really revolves around identity. In Genesis 1:27 it says so God created mankind in his own image in the image of God he created them male the Hebrew word zakhar and female the Hebrew word nekeva he created them in the next chapter chapter 2 then the Lord God made a woman the Hebrew isha from the rib he had taken out of the man Hebrew for adam and he brought her to the man This is significant as Sam Albury points out the clear implication of this one from male and female in Genesis 1 to man and woman in Genesis 2, an implication everywhere confirmed as the biblical narrative unfolds is that a person's biological sex reveals and determines both their objective gender, what gender they in fact are, and certain key gender roles should they be taken up. That is, human males grow into men and potentially husbands and fathers. And human females grow into women and potentially wives and mothers. And Jesus affirmed this in Matthew 19. Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. And then it said about Jesus in John chapter one, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The Bible clearly teaches that humans are gendered sexual beings whose identity is not determined by how we feel or who we are attracted to, but instead by our creator who made us in his image to be his children. 
That's the roadmap. That's the path that God desires for you to take, that you would understand you are created in his image and he wants you to be one of his children by receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The Bible calls every Christian to see their primary identity as child of God. All other identity labels or significant parts of us are not lost, but secondary to and in submission to the identity Jesus has given us through his death and resurrection. And if there are any parts of our story, any parts of our lives, any, any identity labels that are, that are shared throughout culture that don't align with God's heart, then they must sit in submission to the most important and the primary identity, which is child of God. Big idea number four. The Bible commands a high sexual ethic for everyone. And so before you begin to maybe think, man, is this sermon just about picking on one sin, on one struggle? No, no, no. The Bible is clear that God's best, that because he wants your life to be one of flourishing and fullness and wholeness, that there is a high sexual ethic for every person. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee from sexual immorality. It doesn't mean get as close to sexual immorality as possible. It literally means run in the opposite direction. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Sexual immorality here is the Greek word porneia. It's where we get pornography from. But it's really any kind of sexual relationship that is outside of that which happens between a husband and a wife. But Jesus doubled down on it. He said, but I tell you in Matthew 5, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so again, Jesus isn't talking about same-sex attraction or orientation or even waking up attracted to the opposite gender. No, no, he's talking about as soon as we begin to lust or have any kind of sexual immorality, whether that's with the same gender or the opposite gender in a way that is not affirmed in God's word through marriage between a husband and a wife, that we're in sin and we're missing God's best for us. Big idea number five, and this is a really important one. Christianity liberates us from the unhealthy obsession our culture has with sexual and romantic relationships. Look at what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter seven. He said, now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, go sign up for The Bachelor. Go join a dating app. No, no, he didn't say that. He said, to the unmarried, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. You see, we live in a culture that's obsessed with the bachelor and the bachelorette and love is blind and all of these shows that make you feel and make the message crystal clear that the most significant thing you could do with your life is be in a sexual relationship with whoever you want to. And that is an empty lie from our culture. 
And the Bible, oh, it liberates us. In fact, some of you may have felt so much pressure to date somebody, to, to marry somebody, to, to get into a really serious relationship. Maybe you felt the pressure of that. Did you know that the Bible actually frees you to dedicate and focus your life on Jesus and what he has for you, which may include marriage or may not. You see, here's the thing you need to know. Romantic singleness does not equal relational loneliness. Romantic singleness does not equal relational loneliness. The message of our culture is that if you are not in a sexual relationship with somebody, you must be a lonely person. And the Bible says that's a lie. And the reality is, is that you can be relationally fulfilled and satisfied without being in a romantic sexual relationship. Paul said in Romans 12, so in Christ we, though many, form one body and each member belongs to all the others. Here's reason one billion and one that you should consider being a part of the church. We're a family. We're a community. In whatever age or stage of life you find yourself in, we are a family. Listen to what David said in in 2 Samuel chapter 1. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan, who was like his best friend, lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful. More wonderful than that of women. Now David was in no way implying that he had a sexual relationship with Jonathan. And David was married, but he's describing the potential the significantly satisfying potential of a relationship, of a friendship. In fact, let me just share with you a few biblical heroes who were single. Jeremiah, John the Baptist, Mary Magdalene, Anna, Paul, Lydia, and of course, Jesus. Now, big idea number six. The Bible consistently commands God's people to not engage in same-sex sexual activity. And this has all of a sudden become highly debated, which is why we need to spend a little bit more time on it together. Dr. Preston Sprinkle, he said this, it's not about being affirming or non-affirming. It's about being biblical. It's about submitting to God's word, even if it critiques and offends what you've always believed. And our primary objective here at Purpose Church is not to either be affirming or non-affirming. It's to be biblical. We believe that the scriptures are God's good, true, perfect message and word to us. And so we desire to be biblical, which is why we're going to take the Bible seriously. There are five passages in the Bible that specifically address same-sex sexual activity, and each one prohibits it. Additionally, the Bible only affirms sexual relationships between a husband and a wife. Now, the five biblical passages are here on the screen. You can see them, but the ones that we're going to talk about today are Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's start in Romans 1, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. Now, 
sexual impurity here, we're going to talk about it in a moment. This was any kind of sexual immorality. So it's not targeted to one specific kind of temptation. This is for everyone. And what Paul is saying is people are rebelling so much from God that, that, that he gave them over to these desires, all kinds of sinful desires for the degrading of their bodies with one another. This is the important part. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. I don't know if there's any better line that describes our culture today that we have exchanged the goodness of God for a lie. We've exchanged the willingness to sit under the authority of a good, loving father who knows what's best for us for the lie that that we are the best God of our lives. And they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised, amen. Paul goes on in the next verse. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The Greek there for unnatural ones is paraphyzen. We're gonna get to that in a minute. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with one another, with other men, and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. So here Paul calls calls out both women and women sexual relationships and men with men sexual relationships. Dr. Preston Sprinkle says paraphysin, that that unnatural that Paul was talking about, was simply stock language used by other Roman and Jewish writers to condemn same-sex relations. Extramarital or marital, consensual or non-consensual, pederastic, adult men with teenage boys, which we'll talk about later, or peer, paraphysin was used to critique same-sex relations as against the design of nature or in Paul's view, against the design and intention of the creator. The fact that Paul uses paraphysin in a context, Romans 1, saturated with allusions to Genesis 1 and 2 suggests that this meaning is most likely what Paul has in mind. He continues, Romans 1 actually condemns both gay and straight people, a point that is sometimes missed when homophobic Christians unsheath the chapter and wield it against the LGBT community. The reference to sexual impurity in Romans 1.24 here is not limited to same-sex relations. It's a general statement that includes sex outside of marriage, adultery, rape, and all sorts of other sexual sins committed by both gay and straight people. He continues, many affirming scholars will counter by pointing to pederasty, which was a Roman practice of adult men having sex with teenage boys as the premier image of what Paul had in mind when he forbade same-sex activity. While affirming scholars are right to point out that pederasty was the most common form of same-sex relations in the Greco-Roman world, the truth is it was not the only kind. 
And we're gonna drill even deeper into this because this is the most common objection that you'll hear to the traditional historic interpretation of these passages forbidding or prohibiting same-sex sexual relations is, is, is you'll see people reference pederasty or, or they'll say, well, Paul wasn't describing the kind of uh, same-sex sexual activity that we experience today. He was talking about something else. I, I hope this helps you understand what Paul is actually saying here. I want to provide on the screen, and and you can look this up later as you look into the notes, but here are just 10 examples of equal status, same-sex relationships in the Greco-Roman world that Paul and the entire Greco-Roman world would have been familiar with. Now, some of these 10 are actual historical figures. Same-sex people who were in a equal status, not one older or in more power than the other, a consensual, monogamous, committed same-sex relationship that Paul would have known about. These are historical figures or some of them are mythical characters that were written about, proving the point that, that Paul had in his mind and his first audience had in their mind all sorts of expressions of same-sex relationships. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men. The two Greek words there are malakos and arsenikoites, which we're going to spend more time on nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. Oh, what hopeful, encouraging words. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Now today is not about handpicking and isolating one specific sin as if others aren't a big deal. In fact, when you look at that list, you probably feel how I feel when I see that entire list that Paul describes there, I'm mentioned. And you're probably mentioned too. And, and apart from Christ, apart from repenting from these sins, we will not inherit and have eternal life with Jesus. But that's why Paul says that doesn't have to be your story. That Jesus, no matter what your sin is, no matter what your struggle is, he has the ability to wash you and to sanctify you and to justify you. But what did Paul mean? Because these specific Greek words have come under attack as of late. What does malakos and arsenikoites actually mean? Dr. Preston Sprinkle says, while malakos, which was, means soft, often described effeminate men in general, the accusation usually included the assumption that he also played the passive role in sexual intercourse. Therefore, malakos doesn't have to refer to same-sex intercourse, but it often did. And when it comes to arsenicoids, first, the two words that form the compound word arsenicoids mean men who sleep with males. Second, arsenicoids seem to have been derived from Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13, the other two Old Testament passages that prohibit same-sex sexual relationships. 
where arson and coite also occur and are used to prohibit uh, male same-sex intercourse. Third, the Hebrew equivalent, mishkab zakur, lying with a male, was also coined as a technical term for same-sex intercourse based on those passages, Leviticus 18 and chapter 20. Fourth, later Christian uses of the term arsenicoites and its equivalents also understand the term with minimal variation to refer to men who have sex with other males. Now, this is an important distinction. Translating malakos or arsenicoites as homosexual, in other words, as translating as homosexual attraction or orientation, instead of what it should be, practicing homosexuality, which is what all of our contemporary modern Bibles translated as, is not only linguistically wrong, to only say homosexual and not practicing homosexuality, is not only linguistically wrong and historically naive, it is pastorally destructive. Malakos, the Greek word, refers to men who thoroughly cross gender boundaries by receiving sex from other men. Arsenicoites refers to men who have sex with other males, which is why I want to say it again. Having same-sex orientation or attraction is not a sin. Participating, biblically, this is what the Bible makes clear. Participating in a same-sex sexual relationship is a sin. In the same way, having gender dysphoria is not a sin. But transitioning from your God-given gender to another is a sin. I think what J.D. Greer said was really wise And on point, he said, we should always be suspect on principle when someone suddenly has found a new interpretation of the Bible that no Christian has recognized for 2,000 years that somehow conforms to what societal norms have become. And as we land the plane, I want to provide a few pastoral words from Paul in Romans chapter 8. Beginning in verse 18, he said, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. I want to recognize that that this message, that there's a reality of following Jesus faithfully with our sexuality that might bring a measure of suffering to our lives. It may limit us from certain relationships that we would desire to have, but Paul says it doesn't compare, the suffering doesn't compare to the glory that will be revealed in us and that we will experience the eternal life that Jesus has for us. In other other words, Jesus' best for your life is truly the best for your life. In verse 28, he says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. I want to specifically talk to those of you that experience same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria. And Satan may want you to believe that God doesn't love you, that he's not working for good in your life. You need to know that the promise of scripture is this, that God works for the good of those who love him, that God wants to do good things in your life, that he has good things in store for you if you're willing to trust him 
Trust him now, even at moments when it doesn't make sense, when your desires tell you to participate in things that are clearly prohibited in God's word. Trust him because he loves you. And lastly, verses 34 to 35, Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Jesus Christ is praying for you. He's on your side. He's encouraging you. He is with you and nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Christ. So hang in there and we want to hang in there with you, no matter what your struggle or challenge or sin is. I had a friend at one point who asked if we could get together to have a conversation. And as he sat across the table from me, he said, I have something really important to share with you. And I had no idea what was coming next. And then He said, I'm attracted to men. I always have been. But I've decided to not ever get into a same-sex, romantic, or sexual relationship because I know Jesus is worth it. He went on to say, he loves me, and I love him, and he's given me great friendships, and he's enough Friends, I want to I want to leave you with that. Jesus is worth it. And our last big idea, I want to give a few next steps for all of us. If you experience same-sex attraction or you're in a same-sex relationship or you experience gender dysphoria, I would love to hear your story. And, and I want to invite you to help us become a stronger, safer, and better community for people who experience same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria and want to explore Jesus and faithfully follow him. You belong at Purpose Church. We love you and we want to support you, care for you, and walk with you. I know it might sound scary to even reach out to a pastor. Maybe you've had bad experiences with that in the past. I would invite you, I would humbly invite you to email me personally, erich at purposechurch.com. It will remain completely confidential. And I would love to clear my schedule to meet with you, to hear your story and to get to know you better. If you still have lots of questions and want answers, As I said in the beginning, this Thursday night, September 28th at 7 p.m., Pastor Glenn, myself, and a few other pastors will be doing a Q&A on this topic at our Young Adults Night. If you are a young adult between the ages of 18 to 35, we want to invite you to be in the room. And if you're not a young adult, we invite you to join us on our Purpose Church YouTube channel for a live event at 7.15 p.m. And we want to answer your questions. And so if you could email us at questions at purposechurch.com or you can text us 909-713-4152. Text those or email those to us by Tuesday night. And we're going to try to answer as many of those questions as we can on Thursday. And then lastly, if you want to know how to engage in this conversation with your friends, family, teens, and community, 
Here's a few steps. Step one, get educated, equipped, and find some support. You can go to purposechurch.com slash sexuality. If you're same-sex attracted or in a same-sex relationship or experiencing gender dysphoria, we have resources on there for you. Or if you're wanting to know, how do I engage in this conversation with my teens or my, my friends or my family, go to our website to get those resources. Number two, when you're hearing someone's story, listen first and show empathy As soon as somebody begins to open up, don't say, hey, I just heard a sermon on this. I'm gonna send it to you right away or hey, I've got all the answers. No, no, no. Listen and show empathy. It takes a lot of courage and bravery for someone to open up about this part of their lives. Number three, when sharing your thoughts, begin with God's great love story for all people. Step four, share the truth about God's design for friendship and sexuality with gentleness and respect. And then lastly, commit to more conversations, not just one, and keep the relationship a priority. We've developed a few discussion questions for you. We imagine that you might want to continue to talk about this. And so on the screen right now, you can take a screenshot. You can also find these on our website, purposechurch.com slash sexuality. But here's some discussion questions for your family or your friends, your roommates, your community to continue to discuss. Again, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. As we talked about God's great love story. And as we close out, I would just love to pray for us. Oh, Heavenly Father, I thank you for our time together. I thank you for your word that is good, it's true, and it leads us into a relationship with you for all of eternity. And God, even those parts of scripture that are hard, that don't always make sense in our culture, would every single one of us, knowing that you love us, that you love us more than anyone else could ever love us, that, that your love is the greatest love story in the history of the world, would we choose to trust you? No matter what struggle we have, no matter what sins we're, we're tempted to partake in, would we trust you and would we follow you? And God, would you help every single one of us to see the ways that you're working out for good the story you're writing with our lives? For my brothers and sisters and friends who experience same-sex attraction or are in a same-sex relationship or experience gender dysphoria, I pray, God, that you would demonstrate to them, that you would show them your incredible love for them. That you would remind them that Purpose Church is a safe place to get answers, to, to get help, to find support and love and community. And Jesus, would all of us handle this conversation with truth and love with gentleness and respect. Thank you for your great love story. Jesus, you are worth it. In your name we pray, amen.